Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Ted Long today, but first, we'd like to check in on current hot topics in health and healthcare. And Harlan, you've been a true leader in the development of evidence and understanding around long COVID. And in fact, you brought us a long COVID patient as one of our first guests on episode 12. Back in December of 2021, that was Liza Fisher. Uh, and you just recently attended a long COVID conference and our principal investigator in one of the largest trials. You want to give us a, an update on all of that? And I have a lot more questions <laughs> to ask. Well, you're giving me way too much credit. I mean, in part because the field still remains rather fledgling. I had the pleasure of attending what was called a Keystone Conference. A, a Keystone is sort of a conference usually bring together basic scientists, uh, of which I'm not, but but they were they had a conference. It's a nonprofit group. Leaders, uh, investigators, even patients from around the country came to New Mexico, which was nice, and had a chance to spend a couple of days together presenting information to each other and, and learning from each other. I, I'll tell you the thing I took away. By the way, there was a story in NPR about it and some other, other reporters yeah, were there. Yeah, great well. coverage. So the, I think the one thing that impressed me was that, that person after person who was really focusing on data about you know measurements of the patients. That is, some of it was biopsy, some of it was imaging, some were just physiologic exercise-based testing, were demonstrating objective findings of abnormality. So, you know, I still hear people saying, is there really a thing? I mean, I don't really believe that there's a long COVID. I can tell you, you know, there's no question people are suffering. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people who are, you know, reporting this kind of syndrome after having been infected with COVID. And, and now there is really, I think, strong evidence about the pathology, you know, that's emerging that you can see with this kind of objective testing. And so it really led me to say that, you know, there, there should be no doubts. If people don't want to believe what people feel, there, there's definitely a lot of other uh, confirmatory evidence and information that, that, that puts this beyond a shadow of a doubt. And, and really, I think, starts to put long COVID in, a, in perspective of, of a syndrome that, by the way, I've believed in from the beginning, but but I think everybody else needs to get on board with. There's a there's a big trial that you've told me about the Recover study. Where do we stand with that? What do you know? Yeah, Re Recover's kind of interesting. I mean, Recover er, early in the pandemic, Congress voted to give the NIH about I don't know something like 1.2 billion dollars to start investigating long COVID, and in that group has been moving along. There's been a lot of controversy because people always want. Scientists move faster and do better, and it's, it sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And uh, Gary Gibbons, from the director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, who's one of the leaders of this effort, working with people like Lior Horwitz, our, our former colleague, friend, student uh, from Yale, and others, many others around the country, casts of thousands, but Lior's playing a central role. You know, I've put together what I think is a kind of a blockbuster study. They've, they've enrolled about 13,000 people around the country. They're now, you know, they're also enrolling a, a group, a cohort of children, and now they're going to enroll a cohort of pregnant people. And they're doing a whole bunch of testing and, and assessments to try to characterize who these people are. And then they've just started a few trials. And yeah, of course, there's always things to, to wish would have gone faster, better, cheaper. But, you know, this group, I think, in the end has put together a, an amount of information that will, will yield important insights. I think the frustration is it's taken them a while. Well, that's not a big surprise because they were also committed to a representative study. So they've spent a lot of resources and a lot of time making sure that it's not just homogeneous with regard to race, ethnicity, income, but really representative of the population of the United States, population that's affected 
with long COVID. I'm hopeful that this will uh, yield important information and targets for interventions. You know, it's sort of complement. I mean, it's a, it's a much bigger study than what we're doing, but but I think that you know there needs to be multiple shots on goal. This is the biggest shot on goal, it, and and I was actually listening to them. It, it buoyed my spirits about. Yeah, I think in the end, I'm still hopeful that this is going to help us uh, make important advances. But it's a big, big investment. And by the way, Congress and no one else is putting in any money after this. So there's also a big question. The money ends in 2025. What will happen? I think they're going to have to show what they can do before that. And then I hope that, you know, they'll show good stuff and people put more money in. And and you've got multiple studies ongoing right now, including, I think, a randomized trial that you're a PI on that you've, you're leading. And then there's an observational study where, where do you stand with those? I know you've been yeah. doing a lot of recruitment. Thanks much. You know, so these are a, a lot of this has been on a shoestring with some support. Uh, how, uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute uh, through Akiko Iwasaki, who was a co-lead with me on these studies, you know, has gotten uh, some support of this. There was some FDA study to uh, money that came to Akiko looking at sex differences. And Fred Cohen and Carolyn Klebanoff, uh, Yale graduates who uh, were, are very philanthropic, have provided us some support, and that's much appreciated. The one study is a is a randomized trial of 15 days of Paxlovid for people with long COVID. But it, you know what's cool about this study is in both the studies is that they're digital and decentralized, which means we're really leveraging modern technology to reach people where they are, make it convenient to participate, not force them to travel to an academic center or or inc- you know take time during their day, but but on their smart devices, their phones, their computers, they can enroll, answer questions, connect their medical records. On the trial, we can ship them drugs so they don't have to leave. We can collect, we have blood samples and saliva samples we collect, and we can send someone to their home to do that. And, and actually, we're covering, all, we're going to cover all 48 states and the District of Columbia because of shipping. We can't go to Alaska and Hawaii, but we're going to cover the entire United States. This is unprecedented. Howie, and, and it really represents, I think, a model for future trials that can be faster, cheaper, and more responsive because they're really leveraging, you know, modern ways of moving data and engaging people. And, and all these are participant-centric. The, the observational style trial we're doing is called uh, the LISTEN study, and we, we called it that because we thought in order to learn, we have to really be partnering with patients and listening intently to what they're telling. Again, it's, it's digital, it's actually international. It uh, and it's decentralized. That means people consent online. They they're answering questionnaires, connecting the records, and we're just going to start. I think producing a bunch of papers out of this. We just started with a preprint on people who are exhibiting internal vibrations and tremors. But you know, I think again, this is these are new ways of doing research, and so I'm excited both because I think we can make progress. I'm excited to work with Akiko Iwasaki, who's a rock star, and and we're bringing together the best of clinical science and basic science. And, and I'm excited because of the way that we're partnering with with patients and providing a model for going forward. But, uh, you know, we'll see. In the next couple of months, I think we'll be able to put a lot of good stuff out. Yeah. Well, it's really helpful. I'm, gr- I'm grateful that you're working on this and that so many others are working with you. Oh, yeah. Just a very fortunate. I mean, it's, it's really a cast of so many people. And, and like I said, I hope both studies will contribute to this. We're also looking at post-vaccination syndrome. You know, we, had, we haven't talked about that in this session. Maybe we should take a time in a, a future session to talk about that. We're also looking at that steering from the politics, saying it's it saved millions of lives, but there still may be some people who developed a, a chronic chronic syndrome. So yeah, thanks so much, Howie. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Dr. Ted Long is Senior Vice President of Ambulatory Care Population Health at New York City Health and Hospitals. 
leading a program that provides over 5 million healthcare visits annually. He led the organization's COVID-19 Test and Trace Corps, which was integral to New York City's uh, exemplary response. He's a faculty member at NYU with adjunct appointments at other very respected institutions, uh, and he's previously served as the Senior Medical Officer for Quality Measurement at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and he was Medical Director at the Rhode Island State Department of Health, where uh, he also provided leadership in quality assurance and access to care. So he holds up a bachelor's degree from Yale, graduating in 2006, and I first met him when he was a third-year medical student, and I think you met him shortly after that, Harlan. He also has an MD from the University of Southern California's Keck School and a Master of Health uh, Services degree from Yale. He was one of our Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars, and he did that after he finished his medical residency at Yale. So he's a true Yale, almost through and through. And honestly, he's also somebody who's one of the most committed people to seeing improvement in healthcare delivery and quality and patient-centeredness. So we want to just, first of all, welcome you to the Health and Veritas podcast and just when- just, just, to, just to say we love Ted. I mean, Ted's we do like love one Ted. of the most remarkable people in- you referred him to me. I remember, Ted, when we went on this walk on the I green remember. when I first yeah. met you, and I thought, like, this guy and, is spectacular. And, and, we got and, him to come into the Clinical Scholars and I, Program. And I've known his wife long enough that I can't even call him Ted sometimes because I think I'm supposed <laughs> to call him Teddy. Look, I want to pepper you with a few questions about primary care, and then I want to end with something about the readmission stuff, since you were really an expert in the readmissions. Well, you know that's a an issue for me. But let me get to this issue about primary care. Primary care in this country is in real crisis. And yet, and yet what we're seeing around us is that these corporate giants are buying up these primary care practices at a rapid pace, maybe changing the face of what it will be in the future. I mean, CVS uh, paid, I don't know what, like $11 billion to buy Oak Street Health, a, a fast-growing chain of primary care centers. Uh, Amazon bought one medical for about $4 billion. So on one hand, we're seeing primary care sort of wither in a way in terms of having trouble attracting people in and not being enough. Anyone who wants a primary care physician has trouble finding them, the, these corporate entities coming in. What, what do you see as the future of this and, and what both hopes and, and fears do you have about this sort of changing face of primary care? Well, I think you're pointing out a good and important point, which is that uh, you know, in the past years, primary care has really had a reckoning. Um, it's a hard field. People were burning out and they were getting paid the least of any field in medicine. So who would want to do that? People that are mission driven, but it's hard to be mission driven doing the same work every day um, and not seeing an end in sight. But what uh, motivates me now um, and is the direction primary care must go in is further convergence with value-based care. And we've done some remarkable things in the public health care system in New York to show what the, the promise there is. I'll give you an example. If you would have asked me, among New Yorkers experiencing homelessness, could you ever achieve even close to the same chronic disease outcomes as other New Yorkers coming to our practices? I would have said, absolutely not. That's impossible. Uh, people experiencing homelessness have every challenge in the world, let alone housing is health and they don't have housing. Um, but in New York City Health and Hospitals uh, last year, we achieved the unbelievable. We actually, in these primary care practices we set up for people experiencing homelessness, achieved better, better diabetes A1C control than the rest of our diabetic population put together across our whole system. To me, that just shows that with good primary care, anything is possible. But now with that, with that sort of promise there that's achievable, we need to figure out how we're going to pay for it. And that's the next reckoning is going to be how much can we go towards value-based care 
to pay for what primary care needs to be, especially for higher risk populations. That clinic that achieved the impossible is very expensive. Um, how, how did they do it? How did they do it? So we went to an open access model. We have now four of these clinics across my system connected to eight mobile health units that are on the street every day with roving teams, approaching people experiencing homelessness and addicted to drugs. Our approach of engaging people in care is, is the same question we ask at the beginning of any encounter. How can we help you today? That actually arose from back in the COVID efforts where I was uh, the director of the Test and Trace Corps for New York City. We had this challenge of trying to vaccinate New Yorkers experiencing homelessness. People told me, you know, they just, they, they, they're against the vaccine. I said, I, I don't think that's true. I, I don't buy that. Um, so I did the only thing I could do. I listened and I talked to a lot of people experiencing homelessness. None of them were against the vaccine. What they needed though was they weren't going to get vaccinated if they had a wound on their leg that really hurt and they needed Keflex, uh, maybe ibuprofen. Um, some even told me they're worried about their blood pressure, they're out of medications, they know where they're going to sleep, they're worried about their mental health. When you address people's actual needs, it opens up the doorway for you to really, I think, achieve the impossible and address what we view in the healthcare system as importance. They view it as important too, it just may not be the most important thing to them. So these clinics are open access. When they're ready to engage in care, they can come in. They don't need an appointment and they'll be paired with a social worker as well. So who also asked them, how can we help you today? So that model put together, again, is, is um, achieving what I would have thought would be impossible health outcomes, but it's expensive. And the revenue outcome, the question has to be, how much would have been spent on that patient if we didn't have the model? The question can't be, what's the fee for service that we're going to get for that patient? And does that pay for everything else? The answer is absolutely not. But if you look at what the, uh, these people experiencing homelessness would have cost New York City and the federal government that year, you're going to be saving a ton of money, I'm convinced. That's what we need to show and prove and then do more of. You're, you exist, your hospitals exist almost physically side by side in some cases with elite um, you know, private institutions. And uh, NYU Langone being a good example next to Bellevue, but but Kings County and Downstate, another example, and there are several others. Your outcomes there also have been really very good. I mean, you w recently won an award for your ACO, I think the 10th right. year in a row or something like that. Right. Um, how is this a model? What can we learn from this that the rest of the country can learn so that we can move toward a model where everybody has the same care and, and the same outcomes. Yeah, I mean, for me, the goal is to get every, have everybody have the same outcomes. Um, that, that's, what, what, that's what it will take for us to achieve equity in healthcare. Um, and, and I think it's a good example of your point is, if we can achieve these outcomes in a public healthcare system that um, has traditionally struggled financially. When I came here with uh, Dr. Mitch Katz, we were running a $1.8 billion deficit each year, <laughs> our deficit is now closed. Um, but how can you in that context, make the right investments, figure out what care needs to look like and be able to fund that? That's been our challenge, but we've succeeded because we also own a health plan. So as we've made improvements, we actually get to see the return on the investments that we make in New York City. That's enabled us to at many of our sites, like where I practice primary care in the Bronx, almost nine out of 10 of our hypertensive patients have their blood pressure under good control now. They meet that quality metric. Almost, uh, or well over two thirds, about three quarters of our diabetic patients in the clinic where I practice in um, have their A1C under control. I would challenge you to compare those numbers to any institution in the country. But my, my big point is, if we could do it in our system here, where we have people experiencing homelessness, all the social challenges that anybody could have anywhere, it really does show that anybody can do this 
We're happy to share our model. Other models could look different, but the important point is, as you said, Howie, everybody must achieve the same outcomes because that is what equity is and that is what, what equity needs to be for our country. Yeah, one of the, I think, key things that you're saying here is that we need to, to address the issues that face the people in front of us. We need to recognize their needs. You know, you and I worked on this issue of, of readmission for a long time. And, you know, this is what percent of people end up back in the hospital 30 days later. And a lot of hospitals around the country were indignant about this measure, saying it's not our fault. It's really the patients. You know, that some of them live in difficult circumstances. Some of them have, you know, don't have resources. Some of them aren't educated. Why are you blaming us? And I thought the very best hospitals rather dug in and said, who are the people that we care for? And what are the kind of needs and services that they need to improve? But how do we bridge this? Because you're now in a system that you're describing as fairly enlightened. You didn't just say, hey, it's not our fault their hemoglobin A1C is, is high. They're, they, they don't, you know, they're having trouble with, with housing. So that's not our fault. Instead, you embraced it and said, how do we dig in and help health? But, but that's not broadly felt throughout the healthcare system. How do we get others on board with this idea that we need to take, ownership's too strong a word, but we need to, to understand the challenges our patients face every day and recognize that's part of our charge. It doesn't fall with outside of our boundary to say, hey, I took care of the writing a prescription. It's not my fault if they can't afford it. it it's actually the whole picture is, is our responsibility. We need to work with systems, not as individuals, as systems. How do we solve that? Thanks, Harlan. That's a great question. I think what needs to happen in healthcare, and this is from the point of view starting with primary care, is there needs to be further convergence of how we practice medicine, which should include what a patient's overall needs are and the financial system. So some of the ways that we've been able to start to address that at New York City Health and Hospitals um, is we've made investments in things like community health workers and certain programs that may cost uh, money up front, but show a return on investment like a treat to target program we have, where we have a frequent follow-up um, of patients with high blood pressure or diabetes to make sure that we can control their chronic diseases effectively and quickly. On the back end of that, though, the question is always, who's going to pay for these nurses doing this incredible work, or who's going to pay for the community health workers? And uh, the reckoning that still needs to happen there further is that the, the system needs to be able to pay for uh, the outcomes that, of the patients that we're able to achieve uh, compared to what patients would have otherwise cost the city or the country. And that doesn't need to be taken from the overall city budget perspective. You could start from the point of view of just what the city is otherwise spending. So um, we've made substantial investments because, again, we own a health insurance company. So that enables us, if we're able to uh, take better care of a patient, including through investing in taking care of their social needs, if overall they spend less money from the point of view of the health insurance company, we're able to reinvest that money into further innovations in primary care. I'll give you a couple of examples. So we have a community health worker program that now has 250 community health workers that are embedded in our primary care practices, our behavioral health practices, and our clinics that specialize in taking care of patients with more health need and social needs, like people experiencing homelessness or people that have spent time that are justice involved at either Rikers um, or state prison. The outcome of these investments that we've made are that we're achieving incredible outcomes for these patients in terms of the quality measures that we have and in terms of patients' satisfaction and experience with us. We today have more patients in primary care than we have since before I started, and we're seeing patients grow for the first time in a decade at New York City Health and Hospitals. 
New Yorkers vote with their feet. They wouldn't come to us if they didn't see value in coming in to uh, receive care from us. An example of this, too, is we started a program called NYC Care, which is where a program that we, we created um, with, invest, with investment in primary care for people either that were undocumented immigrants or made too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to actually afford a health insurance plan. Through creating this program, we have 120,000 members today. Half of them didn't have a primary care doctor before the program, and were just going to the emergency room. Among those with high blood pressure or with diabetes, more than half of each of those groups has had a substantial improvement in their chronic disease, averting the need for them to go to the emergency room for, for any care that they would need or to control their conditions before things get worse. That program, we're able to look at the investment of that program, and I think that needs to be the point of view of the healthcare system. What investments can we make, whether it's a program to connect people to primary care, whether it's community health workers addressing people's needs to go beyond the four walls of my primary care practice, or what about clinical innovations that may cost money to hire more nurses, but get better outcomes for people with diabetes and avert their need to go to the emergency room? That's what we need to look at. That's what we need to invest in. I think that's the way that primary care is going to go from a field where people feel beleaguered and, and get paid the least to where we're able to actually value our primary care doctors and they can see that that is the, is the, the backbone the healthcare system needs. Let, let me just say, I think it's really great the way you've aligned incentives. I mean, very few large health systems have been able to pull this off with the with the insurance company. And, and you know, the, a lot of talk about moral crisis of American doctors is sense of betrayal by their leaders. And I think that happens when they're sort of forced to do one thing after the other, but they're feeling like it's not in the best interest of the patients. Just kudos to you guys for providing this kind of leadership and that mission-driven approach. And in getting that kind of alignment, I know you, Mitch Katz, you know, an entire team of people that we, Howie and I both respect and admire that you guys have around you. Anyway, I just want to express, Ted, you know, our appreciation that you joined us today and that, Thank uh, you. It, and it's, it's really great that to be able to share these ideas, because we often talk about all the flaws in the system, but it's also great to talk about systems that are still facing challenges, but are making progress. And, and I think your, your team, it's an example of that progress. So thank you so much. Thanks. Well, I want to also say, if I may, as we conclude here, uh, I want to thank you both for training me and making me believe and giving me the conviction that the impossible is possible. <laughs> That's what motivates me every day um, and seeing us actually be able to achieve this for our patients. Uh, what could possibly be better than that? So thank you both. You're great. Take care. Good luck. Thank you. Well, that was a terrific session with Ted. I think we're very fortunate that we could get him on today. But let's uh, transition to uh, to your segment, Howie. And uh, I think you've got a couple things on your mind about you know the Inflation Reduction Act and what's going on with the medications. Yeah. So you and I have talked about this in the past. We've we've had Anna Kalten back here on episode sixty nine in the past. Uh, this is expected to save Medicare beneficiaries and the federal government. Uh, tens of billions of dollars, I, I believe more than $100 billion in that 10-year window. Um, and we're finally seeing it put into action. So as of August 29th, the Biden administration had finally selected and released the first 10 drugs that will be subject to price quote negotiation in the year 2026. And among those drugs that are going to be subject to negotiation are Eliquis and Xeralto, uh, both so-called blood thinners that are widely used, and then multiple other drugs or diabetes drugs, including a form of insulin. Uh, but I do want to point out, you know, there's already numerous lawsuits pending. I, I would not bet the ranch that this will even go forward, although I'm pretty optimistic that it will. 
But we've got a lot to, to watch until 2026 comes around, but at least we're starting to see the fruits of the labor of the Inflation Reduction Act being put into force. You know how people hear about Infl- Inflation Reduction Act, their eyes kind of glaze over. This thing, though, it seems to me is something which affects the pocketbooks of almost every American. I mean, it's so widespread. But yet I didn't hear like widespread cheering for this. Why isn't the administration getting more credit? Why aren't the people who passed this bill getting more credit? This is a huge deal, isn't it? It is a huge, huge deal. And there are so many ways in which it's going to save money for people, but only a few of them are really kicking in now. The insulin reduction for co-pays is already kicked in, but most of the other things are put off. It starts to really have incredible savings in 2026. It gets better in 2028. And much like the ACA, which passed in 2010, but didn't really become reality until 2014 and beyond, I think people don't believe in anything until they have experience of it. And even then, until somebody says it's going to be taken away from them, they don't realize how good (laughs) they have it. So I'm hoping that that from a political and a policy point of view, this is a winner. But I can say, you know, with confidence watching this move forward, it does seem to be a well-written piece of policy. Well, that's terrific. So for the people who are fighting it, what's the basis of these lawsuits? So there, there's... Uh, there's this sense that the government is not allowed to take things away from you as a private citizen or a private corporation, the takings clause. You can't just take away from people. And so I can't just move and say, you know, the government wants your house, Harlan, we're going to take it from you. Uh, There's real recourse in that situation. Here, they're coming and saying, well, you're actually, you're claiming these drugs that we own. We own these patents that's written into the Constitution patents. Uh, FDA regulation is, is, is a firmly in statute, and now you're reversing some of that. But there's very strong arguments to push back against that, not the least of which is that Medicare already regulates physician reimbursement. Medicare already regulates hospital reimbursement. And so this is not that different than that. Yeah. So, you know, what I hear all the time is you're going to stifle, you know, innovation and, you know, the U.S. has to pay more for drugs because we're the engine for innovation. What, What do you say to those folks? Yeah. So first of all, Larry Lovett had a great op ed in The New York Times this week. But the point is that, you know, I do. You've you've said to me, you don't believe this. I do believe this will stifle innovation. But The trade-off of the tiniest amount of stifling of innovation, and I think Larry Lovett's number was like 1% of drugs 30 years from now might not appear because of this legislation. But the trade-off is so far off that it's sort of like, do you really want to let people die from lack of access now with the promise of 30 years from now having one new drug out of every 100 being discovered? And I think we do make trade-offs like this all the time. And this is just one more example of that. So I do think, does it stifle innovation? Yes. On what scale? A tiny, tiny scale. You know, they picked 10. I was wondering, uh, you know, so on what basis do you pick 10? I mean, there's so many drugs they could have picked. Yeah. So they pick them on the highest spending drugs that Medicare is already spending on and then further narrow it down by saying, we're not going to include drugs that have only just been released and therefore haven't had an adequate time to recoup profits. We're not going to pick drugs that have generic competition already. There are little things that narrow the list down more. And so one of the things you and I have talked about is when will 
the obesity drugs, for instance, hit this list. And in all likelihood, the next wave of this negotiation, which will be in, I think, 2025, 2026, which will impact 2028, will almost certainly include those drugs. Just finally, I want to ask you that it seems like every other country like us, I mean, every other country that has a sort of economy at our scale is is imposing price controls on drugs. Yeah. I mean, they're negotiating with them. We're paying so much more than everybody else. Yeah. How is that fair? I mean, how is it fair? Yeah, look, I, I think if you look at it and say we're getting slightly earlier access in some of these countries um, and that it is a very productive industry in our country as well, you can say there's some benefits from having that. But in aggregate, we subsidize the rest of the world. Some of that subsidy is a good thing, like when we subsidize the HIV uh, care in sub-Saharan Africa, where they would not be able to afford it. That's a good thing. But the when vaccines, it comes to, the, the vaccines yeah, for COVID. That's yeah. right. In India and other places. But when we are starting to uh, basically subsidize the cost of research and development for pharmaceuticals for countries that are our absolute peers that we compete with, there's a failure in that way. And so we're we're looking forward to a time when that won't be the case. And I do think it's something that our trade authority does have within their rights to negotiate. Well, that's great, Howie. Really, it's, it's wonderful to hear your views on this stuff. So you've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krummeltz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter or X or LinkedIn. I'm not sure, Harlan. And it's a good question for our listeners. <laughs> yeah, People should tell us whether they think that, that, that X is the place to be anymore. Well, I'm not sure myself, uh, but we are looking for feedback. I mean, one of the feedbacks are, you know, what's the right length of this program? We've been keeping it about 30, 32 minutes. Uh, some of our listeners actually would like us to go longer. Others tell us uh, this seems like about the perfect length. We'd like we'd like to hear from you. We love your feedback. Yep. So you yep. can you can contact us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs or check us out at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gilles and Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are incredible. Oh, week thank, in, week out. Thank goodness, for sure. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.